So I'm in Revelation chapter 23, and here's what it says. I bet you you'd like to see what it has to say, too. There we go. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And you shall dwell in booths for seven days... All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So kind of in fulfillment of that, the Jewish people will take these branches and put them all together in this little thing called a lulav, and they'll have this piece of fruit, which is called an etrog. It looks like a lemon. It's kind of in the citrus family. It smells good. Um, I'm going to actually pass it around. During the sermon, you guys could give it a little smell and just pass it around. And try not to break off the little tip on the end there. If you do, lightning will strike and you will lose your salvation. <laughs> Boy, Steve, you're harsh. So it says, the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle. Who uses that word today? You know, it's just not a word that's commonly used. In fact, if I were to say, hey, write down for me a definition of the word tabernacle, what would you write? I mean, as Christians, you might have a better feel because it's a biblical word. But if you ask the guy next door who lives next door to your house, like, hey, man, what's a tabernacle? I don't know what a tabernacle is. Oh, it's a choir. The Mormon tabernacle choir. Ah, it's a, it's a choir. So I wanted to give you the definition of the word and to show you how it's used throughout the scripture. Me, if I was translating the Bible, I don't think I'd ever translate the word as tabernacle. But it's customary, and people don't like stepping away from custom. It comes from the Hebrew word sukkot. That's the plural version, sukkot, or the singular sukkah. And it basically means, well, let me give you the lexical definition right here. It's a hut, or a lair, a booth, a cottage, a covert, a pavilion, a tabernacle, a tent. A tabernacle is a tent or hut. It's that simple. It's a, it's a temporary shelter. If you went out into the desert and you built yourself a lean-to to keep the sun off of you, there's your tabernacle. There's your sukkah. Just something to, to kind of temporarily be protected. It's not a fortress. It's not even usually a house. In fact, I don't know if it's ever used as a house in Scripture. It's just a temporary shelter. The concept throughout the Scripture carries the concept of shelter, protection, fellowship, which I'll get to later, and provision. In fact, we're going to look at all of these a little later. Shelter, protection, fellowship, and provision. Some of those aspects are, are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 6, where it uses that word tabernacle. It says, and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from storm and rain. So... That's probably the best verse in the Bible to help you understand the meaning or significance of a tabernacle, a sukkah, tent or booth. Shelter is probably the best word, shelter. So almost every instance 
instance of it in the Bible, it refers to a temporary dwelling, something you just erect for a short period of time, like if you went camping or something. But I did find an instance in the Bible where it's used in a permanent way, and which was kind of weird because you don't ever think of the word tent as a permanent type of thing, at least not in our culture. Maybe the Bedouin do. But here's where it was. It was in Amos chapter 9, and this is what it says. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord God. Now, there's all sorts of words that are being played with in this passage. And chances are you have no clue what any of this means because it's rather ambiguous. If we just jumped in the middle of a chapter 9 in Amos and read these weird words that we don't understand, let me try to clean it up for you a little bit. But first, it mentions the word tabernacle that has fallen down. Of course, it's not a permanent structure. And he says, I will build it up again. But I like how it says, I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up. Planting, reaping. All right? So it's, a, it's a, like an agricultural metaphor. Because the festival of tabernacles, remember they're using the word tabernacle here, is an agricultural festival. It's a first fruits festival. So the people bring in their bounty, and they celebrate with it and offer it to the Lord. So he's using those, this play on words here. And then he uses this concept of, of temporariness, it's broken down, but then he says they will never be uprooted from their land again, so it goes to permanence. It starts off calling it the tabernacle of David, and then it goes and talks about all of Israel, I will plant them in their land, and they will never be pulled up from it. So the two things that are really going on here is David's dynasty is mentioned. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair the damages. The tabernacle of David, King David, his dynasty. And then when it goes to them, I will plant them, it includes all of David's people, the entire nation of Israel. How do I know this? Because a little bit of background. If you have read through the scriptures, especially several times, there's something that would jump into your mind when you read this passage of scripture. Let me tell you a little story. David in the Bible is called a man after God's own heart. He was the first real king of Israel. Saul was king before him, but he wasn't a very good king. David brought Israel into their golden age, where they were strong and wealthy and prosperous. David was the king in Israel. And David lived in a beautiful palace, but he loved God. And every time he went to worship God in God's place, it was a tabernacle, it was a tent. God didn't have a temple. He had a tent. And David said, this isn't right. I have this big, beautiful house, and God has a tent. You know what? I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build God a temple. And so the prophet Nathan comes to David now with a message from God. And that's where we are as I read the scripture. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord... Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. The Lord tells you that he will make you a house. 
That's kind of like a parent, right? Mommy, I'm going to give you a present. Thank you, sweetie, but let me give you a present. God, I'm going to build you a house. What a nice boy. Let me build you a house. What kind of house could a man build for God? God doesn't even need a house. God's everywhere. But a man, he could use a house. Well, David just has a palace, so what do you mean you're going to build me a house? I've already got a house. Listen to what the next verse says, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. So God promised David that his lineage, his seed, would be kings forever. His dynasty would never end. But something happened in Jewish history. David's descendants were kings in Israel for about 500 years. So you'd think, hey, God set it up forever. He said forever, 500 years. But Israel had turned its back on God years before, and God sent the Babylonians in to destroy Israel and destroy the temple. And Israel, I'm talking about the southern kingdom now, which is technically called Judah. So he destroyed the temple, and now Israel's out of the land. They come back 70 years later, but they don't have a king now. They rebuild the temple. They still don't have a king. The Romans come in, and they appoint a king, a half-Jew guy named Herod, who was not really fully Jewish. He was sort of Jewish, but he definitely wasn't of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't a descendant of David. And he's now the king of Israel. What happened to God's promise? God said there'd always be a descendant of David to be king in Israel. What's going on? Well, Herod gets some visitors, wise men from the east. They say, we saw the star of the Messiah, the king of Israel. We have come to worship him. Where is he so we can worship him? Herod hears, Messiah, king? He was a slick, slick guy, though, crafty. He said, you know what? Let me check for you. And then I'll go worship him, too. So Herod does some investigation, finds out that the king is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He looks at the prophets, and they tell him, Bethlehem. So he sends soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the babies there, two years old and younger, to make sure no king will arise to take his throne and his dynasty. This is Jesus I'm talking about, who he was going after. Now, with that background in mind, let me read to you the first few words from the New Testament. As soon as you crack it open, this is what you see. The book of the genealogy of Messiah Yeshua, the Messiah Jesus, the son of David. Why in the world does the New Testament start off telling us Jesus is the son of David? Who cares? Well, now you know why. It's big news. God didn't forget his promise and God didn't fail. God is putting the king back on the throne. And this is a king unlike any of the other kings. Solomon died. David died. You go through the whole list of every king of Judah, they all died. Well, Steve, Jesus died too. Yeah, but then what happened? He got up again, never to die again. That means there is one king forever over Judah, and he's a descendant of David. 
just like God promised. The Bible, it fits together beautifully. Well, the very first book of the Bible tells us the first few words, he is the son of David. Now, I don't know how familiar you all are with the Bible, but the Bible starts with four books, the New Testament I'm talking about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those are the story of Jesus. Then it goes into the story of the apostles, and then it goes into all the letters and stuff, educating us on how to be godly men and women. But the first four are all Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they all basically give the story of Jesus from the same perspective. You can read about the feeding of the 5,000 in one. You can read about the feeding of the 5,000 in the other. You can read about the walking on the water in one. You can read about the walking on the water. It's from another author, but it covers a lot of the same territory. But there's one that has a whole bunch of new data in it, and it's John. And it's the fourth one. So you got Matthew, which starts off telling us Jesus is the son of David. And guess how John starts off? John starts off telling us he's got another father. He's the son of God. It uses fancy language. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. In verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, God promises King David a permanent tabernacle by raising up a king who will live forever. He's introduced as the son of David in Matthew and as the son of God in John. But something really cool goes on in John. And I know most of you missed it because I would have missed it too. That word right there. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Guess what happens when you look up that word? It's a Greek word. It, it's pronounced, and I'm not sure, skino. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. But look at the definition. To fix or have one's tabernacle. To abide or live in a tabernacle or a tent. To dwell. So God says way back in Samuel, then in Amos, I'm going to raise up to David a permanent tabernacle... Jesus, the son of David, the son of God is born, and the scripture says he tabernacled amongst us. Let me tell you, that's no, no accident that that word is used. I told you, one author. Because that word, it's only used like five times in the entire New Testament. It's not a common word. So why was it used? Now you know. In English, it's just dwelt. But when you look at it in the Greek, it jumps out. It says, aha, fulfillment of prophecy. So I tell you, the word is used five times in the New Testament. This is the first, that Jesus dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. The other four times, it's God and man living together. So all five times this word is used in the New Testament, it has to do with humans and God in fellowship with one another. It's an amazing word. The other four, by the way, this one is in John chapter 1. The other four are in another book John wrote, the book of Revelation. Now, the last time it occurs in the Bible, just coincidentally, happens to be in Revelation chapter 21. There's our connection. 
that I told you about at the beginning of my lesson. Let me read it for you. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall skeno with them, tabernacle with them, fellowship with them, dwell with them. And as you read through the book of Revelation, it says that God and man will dwell together forever. It's never happened before. You know, even in the Garden of Eden, we have no indication that God lived there. It seems God visited. You heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden. He says, Adam, Eve, where are you guys? Nothing tells us he actually lived there with them. In fact, I'm almost certain he didn't, or that whole serpent thing never would have happened. But now, with Skino, with Tabernacle, with Jesus, God in human flesh, God will dwell with us forever. Our destiny is to dwell with God. I mentioned earlier that the word tabernacle, the feast of tabernacles, carries the concept of shelter, protection, fellowship, and provision. He will be our shelter. He will be our provision and our protection. And God himself will be with us, and our fellowship with him will be restored. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the festival of tabernacles known as Sukkot. This is the destiny of those who walk with Jesus. Now, let me close with one more verse, also from the book of Revelation. Jesus said this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Sukkot is about fellowship. You're supposed to, during the Festival of Tabernacles, do like Congregation Bessar Shalom did Wednesday night. Bessar Shalom invited Book of Life to come have lunch, dinner, in the sukkah. We had a barbecue together. And then last night, we had movie night out in the courtyard. It's all about fellowship. You're supposed to invite your friends into your sukkah. But Jesus, metaphorically, he's standing on the outside, knocking. Can I come in? It's like, oh, John, come on in. Hey, Rita, come on in. Larry, come on in. Jesus is like, can I come in? Think of all the people you've invited over to your house over the years. And I'm specifically thinking about people who don't walk with Jesus right now. He wants in. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to tabernacle with you. You realize a door is no obstacle to God. He's knocking on it because he's a gentleman. He can't force himself on you. He's not going to make you invite him in. He doesn't want to dine with you if you don't want to dine with him. He loves you, but he can't force you to love him back. So he stands outside hoping for an invitation. And we have the right 
to accept God in the person of Jesus or reject God in the person of Jesus. Messiah wants to have Sukkot with you. He's knocking at the door of your heart. And the question I want to send you home with this morning is, will you let him in? Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I invite Jesus in. I first invited him in, wow, way back in 1984, a long time ago. But I'm thinking of the, of the song that Ted led us in about being born again. It says, sometimes we have doubts and fears. And Lord, help us to walk strongly with you, to have no doubt, to have no fear, and to live godly lives that we might introduce other people to you. Thank you for being a gentleman. Thank you for dying for our sins, Jesus. Help us to be worthy of the love that you've given us. Amen.